Well, you can open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 17. If you're new, uh, an interesting thing about the Bible is the Bible is a bunch, it's one book made up of many books, and in the Bible is a book of beginnings and a book of endings. The book of endings is the book of Revelation, the book of beginnings is the book of Genesis, and we've been in the book of beginnings. And in the book of beginnings, you have the first marriage, you have the first murder, this is all in the first few chapters. Uh, You have the first family, you have the first flood, and then you're introduced to this guy named Abram. His name's going to change today, it's going to be Abraham afterwards, but he's the first missionary. So sometimes people think, oh, being missionaries, is that a new idea? Is that a New Testament idea? No, that's a very, very old idea. The first missionary, uh, his name is Abram. And God calls to him, and and Abram is 75 years old uh, when God first calls him, which is a great reminder to us, if you're not dead, God's not done with you, right? There's no age in which God can't do something with you, in you, through you. So Abram is, um, you know, he's living functionally, he's living in his dad's basement until he's 75 years old. And this is the classic failure to launch situation. God says, go, get out of your country, get away from your family. Uh, I, want, I want you to be a blessing to the whole world. And surprisingly enough, really amazingly enough, Abram goes. And we saw, you know, years go by, and last week we picked up, and it had been 13 or 14 years, people say. He's 88, he's, he's 89 years old, he's something like that. And in, while he's been running around, he's, he's had ups, he's had his downs, he's had his questions, and we saw what happened last week, and, and now we're going to pick up in chapter 17, I want you to see that how old Abram is. Now, it's interesting, a lot of times in the Bible we don't get people's ages, but again and again and again, in this passage, we are told how old Abram is. So turn with me to chapter 17, verse 1, it says this, when Abram was 99 years old, so now it's been 20, roughly it's going to be 25 years, a quarter of a century uh, before God's going to visit him and speak the word of God to him again. He's now 99 years old. Here's what they say. The one good thing about being 99 is very little peer pressure. Very little peer pressure when you're that old. Okay? So he's 99 years old. Doesn't have a lot of friends around, right? Everyone else. And, and God appears to him. And here's what God says. Ver, uh, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. So again, we see God as a great initiator. And he said to him, and this is a good lesson for us to learn. God always starts with God. God doesn't say, uh, hey, how you doing? What are your desires? What are your plans? What are your dreams? What are your doubts? Although God cares about those things. He always starts with who he is. So here's what he says. I am God Almighty. That means literally El Shaddai. That means um, the literal translation would be God of the mountains, uh, or many people believe it means the all-sufficient God. This is one of God's favorite titles for himself. Um, It's used about 40 times in the Old Testament, and it's used in the book of Job the most, a book of suffering a book of questioning, a book of waiting, a book of wondering. Here's what he says. I am God Almighty. And then he says two commands here. He says, first, walk before me. Second, he says, be blameless. So let's talk about each one of those. So, so walk before me is a similar command to something you've heard earlier if you, re- if you read Genesis. You've heard, like in Genesis 2 and 3, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve, walked with them in the cool of the night. So when, walking with God just means I have fellowship with them. I have a conversation with him. I have a relationship with him. I have a partnership with him. I'm praying to him. I'm talking to him. Walking with God is a good thing. We have another example where it said Enoch walked with God. We know those verses. This is something different. It says, walk before me. What does that mean? Walk knowing I'm watching. That's what it means. Walk knowing that, uh, have an awareness of my presence in your life, which is an interesting, to, to, interesting thing to say in the 21st century because we are more and more and more aware that people are watching us. Like with technology, with Alexa, you know, we bug our own homes, right? We put, put Alexa in our home and she can listen to everything that we're saying. Um, or what's interesting, I don't know if you saw this, uh, a couple weeks ago, a car was stolen in Atlanta 
And I believe this was the first time this ever happened. A car was, not that the car was stolen in Atlanta, that's happened many times. Um, <laughs> not that. A car was stolen in Atlanta, and they found the car only by using videos. So they were, they, and they, they said that Atlanta right now, downtown Atlanta, this is amazing, has 11,000 video cameras. Now, the government doesn't own all of them. They're, a lot of them are privately owned, but the government got access and w with permission, and they ended up finding this car, I think it was in eight minutes. Really amazing, with, 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 with cameras. And the article went on to say, well, that's kind of interesting. But then it said, Be in Beijing, China, right now, there are 800,000 video cameras in Beijing. It is an official surveillance state. Think about it. There are three times as many cameras in China as there are people in Winston-Salem. And, and, and what they're doing now with the AI technology, and it's really eerie, is, is they've now, AI meaning artificial intelligence, they're doing AI technology now where they're, through these video screens, through these video cameras, they're watching your face to see the emotions that you have, and then they're determining whether you're respecting the government or not. So they're having these cameras on while the president's speaking, and they're watching the faces of the people, so everyone's got to kind of smile. This is great, you know? <laughs> but the article went on to basically say, what's interesting is people have always, even before there was technology, people have always felt like they were being watched. It's because we are being watched, right? It's like we, 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 we're being watched even when we use an incognito browser, even when we would delete the history, even when the spouse is gone, even when the kids are out of the house, even when the parents are not home, right? So here's the New, the New Testament phrase would be walk in the light. That, that, that would be the same phrase. So walk before me means to walk in the light, right? Our temptation is to walk in the darkness. I always think about my, the middle school dances I went to. This was back in my BC days, okay? Before Christ days. I went to middle school dances at public high school. Nothing good ever came out of those, okay, uh, for me. Um, but what would happen is they would have these dances and, you know, a bunch of middle schoolers and, and, and all the lights are off. And then they would say, at the end of the dance, they'd say, it's time to go home. Your parents are here and, you know, no one would listen. The music was still on. And they would hit the music and they would hit all the lights. And it was the grossest thing ever, you know? You know, you see a bunch of sweaty teenagers and trash all over the floor, and you're like, oh my goodness, you know? And what it did was the light just, did the light change things? No, it just exposed things. It just showed us what was there. So he says, I want you to do this. I want you to walk before me, so live in awareness of my presence. Um, and then he says, and I want you to be blameless. Now, blameless, what does that mean? It doesn't mean perfect, because, well, we've seen Abraham's not perfect, and he's not going to be perfect, and we can't be perfect. And so a good definition of blameless would be all of me committed to all of him. Like that, the, it's a fully integrated person toward the Lord. My sexuality, my anger, my finances, my relationship, my free time, my vacation, my nights, my weekends, whatever it is. It's like all of that is devoted to the Lord. My, you know, and I'm not using my personality as an excuse. I'm not using my Enneagram number to tell you why I can't you know, <laughs> live for the Lord a certain way. I'm not using my Meyer-Briggs test to say that. No, I, I want all of my life to be integrated to the Lord. Now, how does this happen? Really, what we would say here is it's, it's not about perfection, it's about progress. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. I want, I want to talk to us about a, a tool that I found, I found helpful at, to grow in being more and more blameless, to be more and more whole, to basically to grow in repentance and faith. And, and it's a tool I learned in seminary. It's called FDIT. If you want to write this down, you don't need to, but may, maybe you'll memorize it. Stands for frequency, duration, intensity, and triggers. And if you want to know, are you growing in an area of your life, you take, you take that fourfold test for yourself. Now, most men only think about frequency. They think, I, you know, I drank, you know, got drunk three times last month, I got drunk twice this month, or they only, they play that number game, you know? I looked at porn eight times, now I looked at it seven times, and, you know, that's, that's, that's 
the most basic level of analysis in a person's life is frequency, but what's, how about duration? What, is duration important? What if someone says I looked at pornography and you said for how long? Well, 10 hours. Well, that's a long time. That's a helpful measurement. Durations actually can be a discouragement or an encouragement in a person's life, right? I knew a guy and he said, I fought with my wife every, every night. He said, we always fight. He said, we've been fighting you know, every night, <laughs> you know, most of our marriage, but the duration of the fights are lessening and I'm seeing progress. We're being able to repent more quickly. We're able to forgive each other more quickly. We're not staying up till three in the morning anymore. We're able to move forward. Well, that's an encouraging thing. So there's frequency, there's duration, there's intensity. What's intensity? Intensity is how it feels, right? We all know that bitterness has different levels and resentment has different levels and lust has different levels and anger has different levels. And that's the hardest one to explain, but you know what it's like. Well, it's like we're angry, yes, and we fight seven days a week, yeah, and the duration's the same, but the intensity has lowered. Well, praise the Lord. And then triggers is, is the areas I can go, the people and places I can be around and not feel that temptation, right? So that's the alcoholic can go to the bar or go to the restaurant that has a bar. And so I, I give you these just to say that I think sometimes, now, now you could use them and maybe it wakes you up to realize you're not where you thought you were. A lot of times it's a way to encourage somebody in the, who's, been, who's beating themselves up. All right, well, let's work on these. Let's work on being completely committed to the Lord. Let's, let's work on decreasing the frequency, the duration, the intensity, the triggers. So, so this is what he says. He says, walk before me, be blameless. And then he says something else. Look at verse two, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and then this is a common refrain, right? That I may multiply you greatly, and then if you drop down to verse four, he says a similar thing, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, I have not talked a lot about this, but this is an interesting thing, that, that again and again and again, when God shows up to Abraham, he basically promises him land and lineage, people and place. And uh, what's interesting is in the covenant and in the promises, God keeps promising Abraham something the average American wouldn't be very excited if God promised them, children. You know, I mean, that, that we actually live in a society today that doesn't really like children very much. That doesn't like, right, the child-free life is what everybody's talking about. The, the birth rate is declining in the, in the Western world. Japan's on the, on the tip of the spear for that. They're now creating robots to take care of the elderly because the birth rate is so low. But, you know, pe people nowadays, they don't want to have kids. Now, it's interesting. When, they, when the, psych the psychological literature that's been done between a, a married couple without kids and a married couple with kids, when they do the moment-by-moment -moment happiness, who's happier? The married couple without kids or the married couple with kids? Guess who's happier? The married couple without kids, of course! <laughs> you thought I was going to say the other one? Oh. <laughs> All the parents are like, I suspected this. I always knew this was true, <laughs> right? It's like, that actually, that, that, that's seriously, that's like, that's as, as settled, uh, you know, science as there is in the, in the psychiatric world. I mean, that, that's completely proven. But what, what if moment by moment happiness isn't the ultimate goal? What if the goal is actually a, a lineage? What if, what if the goal is I want to uh, have a legacy? I want to invest in the next generation. I want to pass on the faith. It's like, of course it's difficult when you have children, right? It's like, here's a good thing. You read, you read children are a blessing. You go, well, how does that work? Well, here's, here's how it works. Children are a burden until they are a blessing. That's actually what it is. Children are a burden. They are a blessing. Well, yeah, I get it. But ch children, listen, a five year, until a child is five, they are a full-time job for somebody. Just so you know that. You can divide it up about 10 different ways and figure that out and figure day count and figure out job, two job, one job, one and a half job, whatever it is. But, but a child, until they are five years old, is a full-time job for somebody. And then, here's another thing for the rest of your life. You will only be as happy as your least happy child. 
It's like, well, that's, another, that's all of life. It's like, well, I'm going to meaningfully connect myself to people. Well, the more people you love, the more, there's an old proverb, not a biblical proverb, right? Uh, uh, when you love somebody, you invite suffering into your life. And so, of course, all of these things, but we need a larger vision for our lives. And so he goes on. He promises him real estate and a large family. That's basically what he says. Here's what I want to give you. Here's how Abraham fall, uh, responds in verse 3. Then Abraham fell on his face. That, that, that's the language of worship, right? This is the whole Bible, by the way. The whole, the whole Christian faith is supposed to be two parts. God speaks, we respond. Um, God reveals, we respond. God gives us his word, and in, in, in response, we worship. That's, that's the all of Christian life. Like the first thing we see in the garden is what God creates, and what's the first thing he does? He speaks to them, right? Because we need the word of God, and we need to respond to it. It was interesting, Caleb Duvick, who's on our staff team and oversees our community groups and a bunch of other things, he was telling me about a LifeWay study that came out. And supposedly, it's, it was a 10-year study on discipleship by LifeWay, a Christian organization. And, and what Caleb told me is it was the largest study ever done in the history of the church on just discipleship. What is it? What, what's successful? What's not? And he said that when they, when they looked at, at all the research, the number one discipline in a person's life that was, it, you could call it the keystone habit. It was the habit that would affect every other habit. The, the one habit that made the difference between Christians who were growing and Christians who weren't. Here was the phrase that Lifeway used, Bible engagement. And what that phrase meant is not just I read my Bible, not just I get through the Bible, but the Bible gets through me. Not just I mark up my Bible, but the Bible marks me up. And it was, it's the idea that the word of God is coming to me. And, the, and, it, and some, basically it was people who were committed to in some form or fashion being under the word, reading the word, studying the word, listening to the word, podcasting the word, and then had a plan for how they were going to respond. They were going to journal about it. They were going to be accountable about it. They were going to set goals based on it. And it's like, well, man, that's the adventure of your life. The adventure of your life is know God's word and then go obey that and see what happens. And so what Abraham does is he responds. Now he responds emotionally. Do you see that? He falls down. He worships. We need to have an emotional relationship with the Lord that, that, that flows out of your personality. Right? So um, it, sometimes people wonder, like, when we come together in worship, and some people raise their hands, well, what is that about? That's about two things, surrender and celebration. That's what that means. When somebody raises their hands like this, that's, that's a mixture or mingling or at least one of surrender and celebration. And, and listen, based on your personality, you need to worship the Lord how you know, God's made you. But what's, what can be confusing is when some of you are so excited at your favorite movie, or you're so excited when a 21-year-old catches a football, right? Or you're so excited when somebody throws a ball through a hoop or a puck and a goal and you like, you are like, yes. And you're excited and your arms up and your voice is loud. But in church, it's like, you're like, look bored and say nothing. That's what you are. And we're trying to understand that because we need to be, we need to have an emotional, volitional relationship with the Lord in response. We see Abraham does. He falls to his face and here's what happens next. He says this, behold, in verse four, behold, my covenant is with you. This is what God says to him. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So he talks to him about this idea of covenant. Now, here's what a covenant is. A covenant is relationship and responsibility. So that's why if you ever go to a wedding, what you're, you know, and you've been to those before, um, what you're seeing there is a covenant. It's like, well, here's two people who have a deep relationship who are going to come together. They are going to uh, take vows, which is responsibility. And, and actually, the responsibility is going to hold that relationship. And, and in the Bible, there are two types of covenants. There are unilateral covenants. We saw that last week. That's where God does both sides. That's like Noah. After Noah and the flood, God says, hey, I'm not going to flood the earth anymore. God just says it. He doesn't even make any conditions. I'm not flooding the earth anymore. 
And here's the rainbow, unilateral. I'm, I'm doing all of it. But a lot of times God creates bilateral covenants where God says, you do this and I'll do that. I'll do this and you do that. It's a, another word for covenant in the Bible would be partnership. That would be another good word for it. And, um, and really the main covenant in the Bible it circles around this idea that God says, if you will trust me and train others, I will bless and multiply you. And we want God to bless us and we want God to multiply us, but we don't want to trust and train. And so we see that God again promises his covenant and then he does something strange, strange to us. He changes Abram's name. If you look at verse five, I want you to see this. Verse five, no longer shall your name be called Abram. And Abram was probably like, oh, thank the Lord, because his name means exalted father. So here's a guy who basically has no kids and his name is exalted father. It's kind of humiliating. What's your name, exalted father? How, do you have any kids? No. You know? So he's, okay, God's going to change my name. Great. Maybe he'll give me a name that's more suited for my current circumstance and condition. And here's what he says. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which literally means father of a multitude. He actually raises the temperature. <laughs> it's like, okay, I have no kids, but you're calling me father of many. He says, for I have, and this is interesting, he says, for I have made you. He speaks in the past tense of something that's going to happen in the future. God speaks as if it's already happened. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So a couple things here. We see, first of all, God changes Abram's name. Now, why a name change? We've talked about this before, but um, you know, your name, your name is your favorite word. That's why if you're ever talking to somebody and they have good social skills, what they're going to do is they're going to say your name several times while they're talking to you. And it'll re-grab your attention, it'll re-pull you, and it happens all the time. And if you're good at relationships with people, you'll do the same thing. You'll say their name during the conversation because it kind of brings, it's their favorite word. Of course it's their favorite word. Of course it's your favorite word. You, you heard it since you were, well, just born, right? It's like, that's it. It's like, it's, you know, we, we love that. And so what, what happens is, okay, God's going to take the most foundational, the most formative, the most basic thing about you, and he's going to change it. That, that's how profound his impact is on us. And this is common, right? Jacob becomes Israel. Saul becomes Paul. Um, he, he, Simon becomes Peter. This is a very, very common thing. And it's, and it's often associated with kind of a new call into our lives, a, a new level of, of um, commitment. And, and here's, here's basically the, the New Testament ethic is this, to become who God says you already are. So God tells him, you are a father of many nations. Now you need to become who I say you already are. Like in the same way, if God says you're a son or daughter, now you live in light of who God says you are. He says you're pure, so you live like that. He says you're forgiven, so you live like that. He says that sin no longer has power over you, so in response, you live like that. And then he does the same thing to Sarai. So God, God at first changes the name of Abram to Abraham. From now on, he'll be Abraham. And then he does the same thing to Sarai. Look at verse 15. Skip down to verse 15. You'll see the same thing. And God called Abraham, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, and Sarai, by the way, means contentious. And that might be not that surprising last week as you saw her interact with Hagar and her husband and all that other kind of stuff, but, but her, name, her name used to mean contentious. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Now, Sarah means princess. And isn't that beautiful? That's, like, well, that's what every woman would want to be called. It's like, that, that's the whole idea that God is a king, you're a daughter of the king, therefore you are a princess. It's this whole new idea. He says, but Sarah shall be her name, and then a specific blessing to her. He says this, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, 
I will bless her, and here's the main blessing, and this is, by the way, going to be the first mention of nations and kings. And she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. See, we've talked a lot about Abraham. I want to take a moment and talk about Sarah. So Abraham, you know, he has two titles outside of his name, Abraham and Abram. His titles in the the Bible are um, father of the faith. He's he's referenced as that, and he's referenced as uh, the friend of God. So what is Sarah? Sarah is basically mother of the faith. Sarah is mother of the Jewish people. Well, what's interesting, what's happening in verse 15 and 16 is something that needs to happen in our, our society. I think we've lost it in our culture. Maybe the church will be the last place that still talks about this. But, but what, what is happening in this passage is God is talking about the dignity and the value and the nobility of motherhood. You know, it's like, you know, we, we've lost that value anymore in our society because it's like, well, um, we live in a capitalistic society that likes quarterly returns. So we want to see how does everything working out financially by the next three months. It's like, well, how do you quantify the investment of 18 years into a child? You don't. So motherhood is often denigrated, right? I mean, you you have the radical feminists, they call the home the domestic concentration camp. I don't know if you've heard that, right? Or or you have radical feminists who say things like, uh, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. What's so interesting is that lady ended up getting married to a man. So that fish did need a bicycle, I guess. But that, that, true story, that happened. Um, but what, what happens is, is and, and also here's what I think, I think we have forgotten, and, and, and this is going to, for those of us who have grown up more in, you know, evangelical churches, this may not hit you, but, you know, I, I told you before, I, I grew up as a nominal Catholic. Not a nominal Catholic, not a serious Catholic at all, but, but one thing the Catholic Church, now they go too far, but one thing the Catholic Church does well is talk about Mary. Now, too far, they pray to Mary, they do things that are unbiblical to Mary, but what has happened a lot of times in evangelical churches, Bible-believing churches, Protestant churches, whatever you want to call them, churches like this one, is we've forgotten about Mary. Do you know, so there, there are three kind of famous paintings. There's the famous painting of Christ on the cross, we all know that one. There's the famous painting of the Last Supper, we all know that one. There's a third famous painting that's maybe more famous in some ways through history. It's the, it's the, it's the painting of Mary holding Jesus as a baby. It's a, it's a very, very sacred, sacred, sacred image. The image of a godly, protective mother to a needy child is a very powerful image. And that, that image is almost completely lost in our culture today. And so he, he, he gives us this, this high call to Sarah to motherhood. And then he does something that's maybe even more strange to us. Um, he's going to give Abraham a sign. Now, let me say this as we kind of spend the rest of the time talking about this. This would not normally be a topic that I would address topically. If I was like, all right, you know, here's what we're going to talk about, you know, I wouldn't choose this topic. But, but here's what's happened, and you can see it in this service right here. Our, our, our services have been so full, we need more seats. There's a couple different ways we can get that. We could run more services, or I could preach on circumcision, okay? And so, <laughs> either way, there should be seats open next week here. So... If you feel a little tight in here, there'll be more seats next week. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for just a few minutes on circumcision. Um, because, and I, I'm sure you have never, ever heard a sermon on circumcision before. Um, but it, it's an interesting thing because God's going to give this sign and symbol uh, and seal to, to Abram. I want you to see this. Look, look at me at verse 8 or verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. That's the relationship responsibility. You and your offspring, that's the generational thinking. After youth, <clears throat> throughout their generations, this is my covenant. 
You got to imagine Abraham's hearing all this for the first time. Okay, this is it. I'm going to tell you what it is. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Here it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then he says this in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You know, I was reading this week, there was a pastor, Pastor Ray Steadman, he's dead now, but he was a pastor for many years, and he tells the story. He said one day he was in his office. He said, and there was a young man in his early 20s who came to his office with a big Bible under his arm like this and walked up to him and said, Pastor Ray, will you please circumcise me? And Pastor Ray looked at him and said, keep reading. <laughs> it gets a lot better. You don't need to do that. I, I, I'm going to say a couple things at the beginning, but here's one of the things. Uh, yeah, this is not something the church does, okay? Uh, Novant and Wake Baptist would be where you'd go for that. Um, we, we, uh, we do uh, child dedication, parent commission. We're doing that in a few weeks. That's our way to dedicate uh, our children to the Lord and recognize it. But, but I want to talk about um, why circumcision? So now, now let me say this. It's not unique for God to give us a sign and seal, right? Every, every covenant gets a symbol. Like Adam and Eve, they get the tree. Uh, that's the symbol. Um, Noah gets the rainbow. Abraham gets circumcision. The, the Israelites get the Sabbath. David gets the throne. The church gets the communion and baptism, right? So God, God will often give us visible, tangible signs. What, what a sign is, is it's a reminder of the rights and responsibilities that uh, we have based on this covenant. So now here, here's kind of the question. And by the way, I'm going to try to avoid two extremes, being cold and medical and distant when talking about this, or being you know crude and inappropriate. So I'm going to try to... I did okay, I think, in the first few services. We'll see. Um, so, um, you know, so you think about it. Well, why would that be the sign? I want us to think for a while. Why, why would that be a sign? It's, it's a big deal. By the, this is such a big sign that for the, rest of the new, for the rest of the Old Testament, they basically call themselves shorthand. The Jews do the circumcised. They call everybody else the uncircumcised. Uh, th- this is such a big deal that it makes it on Paul's resume in Philippians chapter 3. Some of you are like, I'm not putting that on my resume. Well, Paul did, okay? Paul, Paul put this on his resume. Um, but, I, you know, you go, well, well, why that sign and why there? Like, you know, because couldn't you just do something that would be both for men and women? Couldn't you do something that was um, trim your nails, cut your hair, um, you know, grow a beard or shave your beard, wear earrings or get a tattoo? I mean, those are all less invasive, you know, more easily done. Why to remove the foreskin of the procreative organ of a man? And I think we need to talk about these things because... We, are blu- we kind of blush and we feel uncomfortable talking about things God doesn't feel uncomfortable talking about. Here's a couple reasons why this is so important. It, it communicates this, that God is involved in the most intimate, personal, and private area of your life, areas of your life. God is involved maybe where you don't want him involved. God is involved maybe where you feel most vulnerable. God is involved in a man's life where he can do the most good and he can do the most evil, that part of his body. And so I want us to talk just for a little bit about why. I think there's three reasons why God gave circumcision to the church to, to the, to, in the Old Testament. The first is it, it lets you start with men. But it says, we are going to go after the men, we are going to get them on board, and we are going to hold them responsible to lead their families. If you get the men, and I'm speaking biblically, but I'm speaking historically, I'm speaking statistically, I'm speaking culturally, if you get the men, you get everybody. 
Um, let me give you an example. Um, if, a, um, if a child is the first person to come to faith in the home, it's a, it's a, there's a 3% chance that everybody else will come to faith in the home. If, if the wife or mother comes to faith in Christ in the home, there's a 17% chance that everybody else will come to faith in Christ in the home. If a man, a husband or a father, comes to faith in Christ in the home, there is a 93% chance the rest of the home will come to faith in Christ. And so, now, this is, you got to understand, this is the complete opposite of most Christianity in America. Most Christianity in America is dominated completely and only by women. And we're, we love the women. We want more women. We're grateful for all the women. This isn't anything about the women. This is actually a, more of a, um, a, you know, calling out, calling up of the men. Right? What's the average man doing? Trying to find free porn on the internet. Living in his parents' basement. Delaying getting a cell phone. Delaying, or delaying getting his license having no plan for his life. Who's the most unlikely person that you'll ever find in a church? An 18 to 25-year-old single man. They won't, they're, they're, they're a mythical creature. They're a unicorn. They don't, they don't exist in the church, right? And, and actually, guess who's the most heartbroken about this? All the single women, right? I think I read, last time I read it, I don't even like to say this out loud because it can be discouraging to some of the women, but there's something like 10,000 more single women in the church in America than there are men, which can be discouragement. And where are these men? Each of you know men who are absolutely wasting their lives right now. They need to be here. They need to repent of their sin. They don't need to necessarily, they need to be in a church. They need to grow up. They need to take responsibility. So that's the first thing it communicates. Here's the second thing it communicates. It communicates that at the center of the Christian faith, it, central to the Christian faith is sex, family, marriage, and children. Like, would it not be true that most, most men or many men would say something, maybe they don't say this out loud, but they would say something like this, my whole life is devoted to the Lord except that part of me. Right? That's a very common thing. It's, it's such a common thing that normally if somebody comes up to me and they want to talk about something, a young man or, or older man for that matter, wants to come up, wants counseling, wants help, not always, but, but 99% of the time I would say it has, it's sexual in nature to some extent. It's I'm attracted to somebody I shouldn't be at work, it's I'm looking at porn too much, it's I had an affair... It's, it's something like that. Or, here's the other thing, oftentimes, now, look, think about this, marriage and family and children, are, this is a uniquely Christian idea, are at the very center of the faith. Because here's another thing, it's very common for a man to go, well, I'm, you know, I'm killing it in the workplace, and everybody likes me at church, and I'm, and I'm a pillar in the community. It's like, yeah, your wife hates you. She despises you, your kids resent you. It's like, you're a joke, you know, and it's like, and, but, you, but every, nobody knows it, and this is also why you never have anyone over, because you don't want to see the, your home life. It's like a complete wreck. Yeah, it, it, right? It's like, if you fail there, it's like, well, nothing else that you do really matters. And so God says, you've got to do this, and this, it's really a reminder that the family is the first church, and the first mission field is the home, and, you know, this is something we all have got to learn. I, I, I'm, of course, I'm growing in this, just like the rest of us, you know. I've got a seven-year-old, I've got a five-year-old, I've got a three-year-old. And we, we sat him down at the dinner table the other night, and we just said, guys, if I, maybe I've not been cl as clear about this in the past, but our, our home is a church. And they looked a little surprised. I said, I said, guess who's the senior pastor? And they pointed to me. I said, I'm the senior pastor. And I said, who's the executive pastor? And they pointed to mom. I said, she's the executive pastor. And then, and then we said, who, I said, who wants to be the kids director? And my seven-year-old daughter, I said, okay, you're the kids director here. You're in charge of babysitting these kids, you know. And... <laughs> So got free babysitting out of it. And then, and then, and then, and then William, who's five, he said, I, I said, what do you want to be in charge of? He said, I want to, I want to do the prayer ministry. I said, great, you're leading us to prayer night. And then Elon, he's, he can't speak too much English yet, but he, you know, he's good. He's going to lead us in worship. But, but what, 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 
what it communicated, right? What it communicated, which was helpful, and we're growing and failing and messy and all that kind of stuff. But what we're trying to teach our kids is they, they have a paradigm for church. And I thank God it's this, this place, and they're, they're flourishing here, and they love our kids' ministry and all that. But we wanted to take that same kind of idea and say, hey, the church is a home. We're going to pray here. We're going to be out the word here. We're going to worship here. We're going to sing here. This is it. So, so it puts sex, it puts family, it puts marriage at the center. And then here's the third one, and this might be the deepest idea of all of them, is in the Bible there's a transition, right? It's what's called progressive revelation where you understand more and more things. So what you see is that sacrifice first shows up in the book of Genesis chapter 3. God is the first person ever to sacrifice. God will sacrifice first, right? He sacrifices an animal to cover up Adam and Eve. And then you see Abel and Cain, they both sacrifice. So you see the sacri first sacrifice of an animal and of um, fruit and vegetables, um, kind of offerings. And then you continue to see sacrifice, right? You see Noah sacrifices when he gets off the ark, and you see Abraham sacrifice a couple times already. Why am I talking about all this? Because with circumcision, there's a transition. Up until now, you sacrifice what you own. This is the beginning of sacrificing who you are, which that's the rest of your life. It's like, well, what do I sacrifice? You sacrifice yourself. You sacrifice the worst parts of you. Here's the idea of circumcision. Sacrifice the part for the sake of the whole. That's what I do. It's a very old idea. Jesus pointed to it too. When Jesus says, uh, um, you know, pluck out your eye or you'll be cast into hell. What is he saying? Sacrifice the part for the sake of the whole. And like, well, how do you do that? Well, how, well, first you start with the worst parts of you. That's where you have to start. And that's hard. Why is it a sacrifice? Why is it a sacrifice? Because you love them. That's why it's a sacrifice. It's like right now, you know like three or four dumb things you need to stop doing. You know them. They, poop, they popped right in your head as soon as I said it. And then you push them back down with rationalization. It's like, well, what do you do in life? It's like, well, th this is the first image, and God will often teach us first things in image and then later articulate them more, more fully. This is the first image of it will be painful, it, it will be intimate, it will hurt, but you will sacrifice parts of yourself for the betterment of all of you. That's the whole idea there. It moves internal later. By Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says, circumcise your heart. So he moves completely internal. Paul will pick that up the rest of the time. The whole sacrificing of the heart is like, well, it's like, well what's the problem with you? You're hard-hearted. You're callous. You don't care. That's our problem. We don't care. It's like, well, what, what does he say? He says, circumcise. Cut off the excess. Have your heart be committed fully to the Lord. Have it be solely undivided. Now, what's the danger of, of all of these symbols? The danger of the symbols is to have the symbol without the substance, to have the sign without the substance, to not understand what it's really pointing to. Because what we actually see is um, in the history of the Jews, circumcision actually becomes an area of pride. This happens to religious people. They have all of the symbols, none of the substance. And see, this happens in the church. Like, you know, if you've ever seen a, a pastor, reverend, whatever, get up before and he's wearing a big black robe. Most people, when they see somebody wear a big black robe, they go, why are they wearing that? <laughs> right? Why are they wearing that? Like, it looks like almost like a big dress. Why are they wearing that? Well, let me tell you, we've forgotten the reason. They would wear that because what it communicated to everybody is, I'm a sinner just like you. And I'm going to just publicly admit that every time by wearing all black. It's like, well, no one knows that anymore. Right? So it's not as powerful anymore. You have to understand the substance behind the symbols for them to have their meaning. It's like, it's like that, I don't know if you ever heard of the, the lady before, and she, she was cutting both sides off the ham, and she said, and her husband said, why are you cutting both sides off the ham? She said, well, because that's what mom did. He said, I'm calling your mom. So he calls mom, the mom. So the mom says, 
He says, why you cut off both sides of the ham? She says, well, you know, that's what grandma did. So they call grandma. They say, grandma, why you cut off both sides of the ham? She goes, because it wouldn't fit in the dish otherwise. (laughs) And that is the story of the church, right? We have done things. We have the symbol of them. We have forgotten the substance and the reason behind them. And so there he gives the sign. And then here again, we'll see the response by Abraham. If you look with me at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. Now, there's lots of reasons to laugh. Some people laugh in arrogance. Some people laugh in pride. Some people laugh in belittling others. That's not this laugh. This is the laugh of wonder. This is the laugh of delight. Here's what he says. Then Abram fell on his face, and he laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child. See, Abraham, and this is what I hope for our church, you know, we're coming up on, you know, I guess closer to three and a half years soon as a church. And one of our hopes is that we would continue to look at what God has done and what God has promised to do. And we will just continue to laugh at how good God has been to us. Just, you know what I mean? It's just like we, we just get up and we go, I cannot believe that since August we've grown by 20%. <laughs> I mean, that's how you should feel. You, we should just be laughing. We're going to probably move out of that building because it's overwhelming and the kids can't all fit in there. We're going to get them in there eventually. It's like, it's so ridiculous that that building is full of kids. <laughs> that, that's how you should feel. Like Caleb, we told him, you've got to try to find out how to launch 10 new community groups in January. <laughs> Good luck with that, man. You know, and he's all stressed out and, you know, we're all laughing and it's just like, it's, a, it's just like so fun. It's like, all right, Lord, this is what you're doing. And we just need more of that in our life. We need to be, we, now see, religious people can't laugh. This just got really quiet in here, but that's the truth. <laughs> right? Religious people can't laugh because they have to have everything together. They have to look really good on the outside. They have to let everybody know that, every, that life is serious. It's like, well, we take God serious, seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously. And Abraham, we're going to see, this will show up later, but laughter is a big idea in the Bible. Okay? Now, you wouldn't know it from the Jesus films where he walks around all sober, somber, you know? But it's like, <laughs> wrong word there. Okay. <laughs> somber. You know, but he's, he's, he was a joyful guy, right? When you, when, by the way, when you, when you say, um, you know, take the log out of your eye, that's funny. That's, that's, a, that's a funny, you know, when you, when you accuse the Pharisees of tithing out of their spice rack, that's funny. Like, like Jesus had a great sense of humor, right? He knew how to laugh at the right things at the right time. And so he, he shows a new emotion. But then in verse 18, it says, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, that is the old life, that is the old way. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So he's still confused. God, I'd like to live for you, but I'd, I'd still like my old life. To, I'd like there's, like, there's parts of my old life I'd like to hold on to. And here's what he says. God said, this is God's answer to prayer sometimes. No. <laughs> right? He's saying no. Like some of us, we need to pray, God, may Ishmael and me die. May my old dreams die. May the things that I were pursuing that were not glorifying you and were harmful to me and not good for others, may those die in me and may I pursue something completely different. And then go to verse 22. As we get ready to close here, he says this. When he had finished talking with him, so God comes down, he descends. Now it says God went up, right? That's because the the language there is that God descends to us. He is above us. He is higher than us. He is not just a smarter, bigger version of you. He's completely different than you. 
So it says, God went up from Abraham, and then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. So what you see is not delayed obedience, because delayed obedience is disobedience, but you see immediate obedience. That very day, as God had said to him. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And you read about a 99-year-old man getting circumcised, and you, it's a struggle when people say, I don't want to get baptized because I feel a little embarrassed. The excuses that people have for baptism almost feel silly in light of a man in his, at 99 years old willing to painfully and bloodily, to just be honest with you, obey God at great cost to himself. It says this, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old, which by the way, you may not know this, Jews sacrifice, or, um, circumcise on the eighth day, and Arabs circumcise when they turn 13. One based on Isaac, one based on Ishmael. When he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, verse 26, that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. Verse 27. This is how this chapter ends. And all the men, not some of them, all of the men of his house and those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner. So you can see different, you know, he started with Ishmael. He started with himself and Ishmael then those in his house, then those born in his house, then those bought with money from a foreigner, they were circumcised with him. Here's the big idea. You know, people read, read things like that and they go, well, how did Abraham get everybody to obey? It's like, well, he was committed himself. Well, Abraham led by, by he didn't ask anybody to do what he had not first himself done, right? You can't, this is a good principle for life, for family, for friendship, for community group. You can't point the way, you have to lead the way. Right? And so many times we're like, you know what? We, we wonder, we're like, you know what? I, I don't know why when my kids went to college, they don't go to church anymore. I mean, we modeled quarterly attendance. We were there every Christmas, every Easter. And when there wasn't basketball or baseball or soccer or football or hockey, we were there. And I don't understand where that commitment is. I mean, we never really gave to the church. We weren't sacrificial. The money, ne you know, that, you know, money never was an area that we worshiped the Lord in, but I'm surprised our kids don't. It's like, well, the truth is we, we can't lead people to where we ourselves have not been. This is why Jesus Christ is the great leader who is the better Abraham who didn't just sacrifice a part of himself, right? That's the very beginning of the story of the beginning of what would be human sacrifice, this is, instead, Jesus comes and sacrifices all of himself for us. And the, the imagery, by the way, of circumcision is the imagery, the, the, the shorthand for it is to be cut off. That's the shorthand imagery for circumcision. Well, what does Jesus say at the very end? That he was cut off from the Father. Why? He was cut off from the Father so that we could be brought near. And now we are to live lives of sacrifice. And, I, and that's my question as we end tonight. Where do you need a sacrifice? It's at least the worst things about yourself that you love. And where do you want to lead other people because you've got to get there first? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Abraham's example. A man of faith, a man that was willing to obey you at an old age after years of waiting, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that obeys you no matter how painful it is. Lord, I pray that we would not be a church 
that forgets you. We want to be a church that remembers you, Lord, remembers your covenant, remembers your promises. We thank you for communion. We thank you for baptism. We thank you for all the reminders that you have, Lord. As a church, may we do what Abraham does, which is respond to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.